From Equality Arizona, you're listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Gene Woodbury. Each week on the show, I talk with an LGBTQ person living in Arizona about their path through a network of relationships. Sometimes I worry that that's kind of a heady concept. I, I mostly worry about that when I'm describing the show to potential guests. And as an aside, anyone listening to this who's an LGBTQ person in Arizona is a potential guest. You can sign up at equalityarizona.org stories. But more to the point, I really believe that what defines us as people and what really grounds our stories isn't our internal journey, but how we connect to all the people around us. Today on the show, I talk with Brother Lee Hughes, and I think his story and the approach to life that he takes, which is really rooted in community responsibility, is something that exemplifies the whole purpose of this podcast. He's also the first person I've gotten to talk to on the show about studying Latin, which fair warning going in, but I was excited. Before we get started, it's important to note that today is October 5th. That's just one week before early voting begins in Arizona. If you're not registered to vote yet, make sure to register to vote today. Just visit eqaz.vote to get registered. And since it's the beginning of the month, we also have a lot of great events that I want to invite you to. You can check all of those out at equalityarizona.org events. One in particular that I'd like to highlight is our very first Queer People Fit yoga event. That's scheduled for October 11th at Upward Light Yoga in Mesa. I hope to see you there. And now, let's get into the interview. I'm Brother Lee Hughes with the Anglican Order of Preachers, also known as the Dominicans. Uh, We are an order in the Episcopal Church, much like the Roman Catholic Dominicans. Uh, I am a married man, and my husband and I have been together for 28 years. And I am also a retired IT professional specializing in telecommunications. Wonderful. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, actually, I'm curious. You were saying you went to get a booster the other day. Is this Mm -hmm. with the new... This is just for my own curiosity. Is that with the new um, reformulated vaccine? No, it was still the regular uh, BioNTech uh, Pfizer shot. Okay. So I've now got four of those. I was supposed to get my fourth booster in April, but we had a very small, we thought, controlled gathering at Easter at our house, And come to find out, one of the people actually had been exposed at a previous gathering at a Passover dinner a few days before. And so she communicated it to my partner, and then he communicated it a week later to me. Ah, gosh. So we had to put off the boosters for a while. Yeah. Although it was really, it does say a lot for the uh, vaccines. He's in a very high-risk group, Mm. and so he was laid out for a bit, but nothing horrible. Oh, good, um, good. We did the antiviral therapy as well. 
And for me, it was like a mild cold. It was more annoyance than anything. Oh, yeah. I, um, I didn't get COVID until after my third shot. And it was super mild, just lethargy and headaches and all of that. If I had lethargy, it was masked by the lethargy I usually have from overwork. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, now I'm curious. Um, you mentioned having a small gathering on Easter and a, a different gathering that was on Passover. Well, it wasn't my gathering. Oh, okay. See, that, yeah. the, the family we had over is a multi faith family. And so they're. Episcopalian, but uh, his relations are uh, also Jewish. Uh, okay, wonderful. So yeah. they went over for Passover, was fairly close to Easter this year. And yeah. so they went over, and apparently, even though they were careful, because the lady of the family had just finished a round of chemo, and so they were being really oh, gosh, careful. Yeah. But apparently, a few of the relatives had not been careful. And being in a very precarious position, she picked it up. And she was asymptomatic when she came over to our house. And then we got a call from their daughter, who was very good friends of ours. And she said, by the way, mom's got COVID. She tested positive this morning. And this was like on Monday. So the day after. And it's like, wow. She didn't look like she had a single symptom yesterday. Okay. So... Tuesday, Hugh fell, <laughs> Hugh fell victim to it. And then a week later, I did because I was taking care of him. I was observing precautions. But, yeah. you know, after a while, somebody slips up somewhere. It's almost inevitable at, at that level. Yeah. Um, how did the pandemic affect your work? Well, um, really interesting. I retired from my job on May the 31st this year. Okay. So prior to that, I had been going, I'd been doing a hybridized work for a few years before the pandemic hit. I would work from home two days and work in the office three. And so when the lockdowns happened, I moved to working at home for five days a week. And this was for CVS Health. And they were a little bit more sensitive to, to COVID-19 contagion than a lot of other companies are. So we had an extended work-at-home period for those of us who had to. Store personnel, unfortunately, could not uh, get around that. Warehouse personnel, they couldn't do that because they were right. part of the supply chain. Yeah. But for those of us who dealt mostly with the software and the services, like I was in, te- I was in telecommunications, mm. we were able to work from home. The only I only had to come into the office a few times and that was basically to drop kick a couple of pieces of equipment that no <laughs> longer would respond remotely yeah oh yeah i think that's um a nice thing that i know some other people who already were in that kind of hybrid work situation where they could work from home a lot and so it was a really easy transition and i i think for people who have family that are in higher risk categories that was a really yeah. fortuitous circumstance. Now, my husband's 12 years older than I am. So okay. I'm 55 now. He's 67. So he was 64 going on 65 when the pandemic broke out. Yeah. And, and of course, we're bears. We're not exactly spelt people. <laughs> and 
<laughs> so that puts us in a risk category all our own. Right. Both have high blood pressure. He has type two diabetes and a couple of, and a couple of immune issues with psoriasis and severe allergies and stuff like that. Yeah. So he was already like for the first part of the lockdown, I wouldn't even let him out of the house. I wouldn't let him go near the door. I wouldn't let him take the grocery deliveries. <laughs> he was a very, very, very serious risk at that point in time, especially since we didn't even know the right ways to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so I made sure that everything came in, went onto a cart, it got wheeled to the kitchen. Everything got washed, including cardboard boxes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was such an interesting moment. We just thought we had to sanitize everything. Everything. And of course, we didn't get COVID until we let our guard down. Yeah. And like two years later. And yeah. fortunately, by that time, therapies were available to make yeah. sure that it didn't carry us off. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. Um, how did you two meet? Hugh and I met in Cincinnati many years ago in 1994. Oh, cool. Uh, we met at a bear potluck. Oh, that's so fun. And he had been a founding member of the bear group in Cincinnati. Okay. And I had just stumbled on the bear community because I had just come out of the closet six weeks previously. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I really didn't have the chance to form any serious relationships or anything like that. And I went to this person's house. Uh, Back then, everything was done by voicemail and phone chains and everything else. Because whoever thought of a smartphone? (laughs) And cell phones were about the size of that mixer board. (laughs) Well, and I know in 1994, people were using like bulletin board systems and the early web and stuff. But I think that was pretty niche still. It, it was, but it was a lifesaver for somebody who was just who had been in the closet for 27 years of his life. I was 27, yeah. not only when I came out, but when I lost my virginity. <laughs> so we're talking really green around the edges and yeah. very nervous. And we had, I, again, I had just, I knew what I was attracted to, just had found out what the community was called found just by happenstance a community bulletin board for that community and they had a thanksgiving potluck going on so i went and not knowing anything i dressed in a sport jacket khakis and a (laughs) turtleneck which was way overdressed for i mean i could have gotten away with my usual flannel and jeans and fit right in yeah um so I was sitting there nibbling on food and making small talk, mm-hmm. uh, being that new meat in the group. Yeah. Needless to say, everybody was, who is this kid? <laughs> Why is he so dressed up? Yeah. And Hugh bounced into the potluck. And I do say bounced because Hugh has always had a bit of a caffeine problem. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I've learned to develop the caffeine problem too. Uh, marriage will do that. Yeah. But he bounced in, and I looked at him, and he was a little hyper. And the immediate thought I went is, who is this druggie? Because I thought he was on something a little harder than caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> and he had surveyed the room, like he usually did, just picking up friends. And he looked over, and he thought to himself, why is there a narc here? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so <laughs> I thought he was a druggie. He thought I was a narc. And it, really, it took a few meetings to, well, it took a few meetings for us to actually break the ice and get to know each other. And in January, then the immediate fo- January following, uh, we ran into each other on the street and we'd both had a rather bad day and we just mm. started to talk on the, st- on the sidewalk yeah. for two hours. Oh, that's so nice. And, and we really clicked and I went home with him and we started dating very seriously and I had moved in by April the 1st of that year. And the next year we were ready to make a commitment uh, back then, you couldn't get married, so right. we sort of staged a commitment ceremony in 96, uh, which was August the 3rd, 96, and then uh, it's basically history from there. We yeah. had, we, I, I'm a dual citizen. I was born and raised in Canada, so oh, okay. when Canada made marriage legal coast to coast in 2004, we did a quick trip up to Toronto to officially tie the knot and drag the marriage certificate back with us. Yeah. And then when it became legal in 2015 here in the United States, the same time the church that we were going to changed their canon laws to make it possible for us to get married in this diocese in Arizona. And so we did all the planning, and we had an actual church wedding in September of 2015. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, how long did you stay in Cincinnati after that point in time, after 95, 96? Well, I had moved there in 1989 for graduate school. Okay. And we didn't leave Cincinnati until 2007 when CVS closed our facility in Fairfield, Ohio. I see. And I was relocated to Pittsburgh for three years. Oh, cool. And then they closed the diocese, the, uh, not diocese, sorry, the data center. <laughs> Same difference. Uh, yeah, a whole lot of protocols that make zero sense. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it made sense to somebody. So we stayed there until they closed the data center because they were amalgamating all sorts of IT processes. And so I moved uh, yeah. out here where we have a date, where CVS has a data center in Scottsdale. Oh, cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, out on uh, Shea Boulevard. And we moved out here in 2010. No, 2011. It's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> and we haven't regretted the move. Well, now I, I want to dig into that diocese data center thing. <laughs> I don't think that's a, a mix-up a lot of people would make. Yeah. So what is your experience then on on that side, the diocese side instead of the data center side? So the diocese in ancient churches is basically the major division in churches in like a national church. For instance, Mm. uh, a very famous diocese is the Diocese of Rome, which is basically the city of Rome, the port of Ostia, and the surrounding countryside. And its bishop happens to be his Holiness, uh, Pope Francis the First. Right. <laughs> okay. And it's been a diocese pretty much for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. <laughs> the way things have gone is most ancient churches, like the Eastern Orthodox Church or whatever variety it happens to be that you're passing by, or the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. or 
any number of the Anglican churches, like the Church of England or the yeah. Episcopal Church or that, uh, they are governed in units called di- geographical units called a diocese. Mm-hmm. And a diocese is headed up by a bishop who is considered the successor to the apostles. Right. It's uh, a rank of clergy from whom all the other ranks of clergy depend, basically. And I, since I'm Episcopalian, I belong to one of those ancient churches that have that structure. I see. And so a lot of the stuff that we do at the parish level has to be validated by the diocese. All of our, in, all of our programs and stuff like that comes from the diocese. Uh, a lot of parishes like to think they're independent, but they're dependent on the diocese. Sort of like when you're in a company and you're in an IT department, everything's dependent on your data center because that's where all the big hardware is. That's where all the major circuits coming in, carrying data are. <laughs> yeah. And that's where companies spend a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So then for you waiting until 2015 for that moment where there was the decision that you actually could have a church wedding, what was that like you know, were there discussions about it? Was it a sudden policy change? Were you involved in any of that? Um, no, I wasn't really involved in that. Okay. I had a period of time where I had sort of like cooled in my relationship with the church, and that I didn't see. really come alive again until 2014. But the Episcopal Church had been sort of fighting that fight in the background for many years. Um, back in the last century, gosh, we can say the last <laughs> century, uh, <laughs> and still mean the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they, the Episcopal Church was starting to reevaluate its uh, position on LGBTQ issues. And they really were the denomination, the, the uh, mainline denomination that yeah. was basically on the front lines of it. Other denominations have been taking taking blows internally on that, but it was the first major one with a, a, a an ancient pedigree that really was starting to wrestle with that. And they had people entering the diaconate, which is a service ministry within the, uh, the church, yeah. or the priesthood. And then, of course, there was the consecration of Gene Robinson as Bishop of New Hampshire, which really blew the lid off the discussion. And the church is still putting out fires to this very day. Uh, yeah. there, there, were, there were some uh, splits within the church over the issue, um, much like we're starting to see with the United Methodists in mo- recent history. Yeah. But they, they sort of like paved the way for implosions and explosions and... Uh, basically the a really lively debate and by around by about 2014 2015 mm-hmm. uh, after having faithful LGBTQ Christians in all ranks of the ministry the Episcopal Church was ready to say well now that it's legal in all the land we can go ahead and not worry about legal reprisals by opening our canon law either uh, right yeah now that, that hasn't been a smooth sailing either. There are still some dioceses that have problems with it. Yeah. And some parishes have peeled off. And it's been a bit of a mess. But when we're talking about a massive 
cultural change like that. And an institution that's ancient. And it, that measures thing whose speed is usually glacial. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking, people feel that the Episcopal Church moves kind of quickly. And for an ancient church, it does move kind of quickly. But it's still glacial. Yeah. <laughs> but I would imagine that, you know, as, as a gay man in that church, even before all the policies were put in place and decisions were made, it sounds like because there was an active process of change, that it was maybe a more natural home than potentially another denomination. Um, yeah, that is correct. Um, my background's a bit checkered religiously. Mm -hmm. I was uh, brought up in a mixed religious household as far as Christianity was concerned. My dad's family were uh, an odd variety of Baptists who were Calvinists, most uh, mm. most uh, Baptists are are on a different wavelength altogether. But my right. the Baptists that my dad's family were were more akin to Presbyterians. The only thing they did differently is they didn't baptize their young children. <laughs> yeah. So then my mother's family um, was a mix. Her on her father's side they were Congregationalist, which okay they're kind of Calvinist as well. True. But her mother's side was. Anglican. At that time in Canada, uh, which is where her mother was from and where my dad is from, it's a really long story there, but they were still known as the Church of England in Canada. And my, my dad's mother put it this way, my grandmother Hughes, the only difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England is a piece of paper so thin you can sneeze through it. <laughs> that is accurate. <laughs> Pretty much. Some Anglicans will dispute that. But, oh, I'm sure. Uh, from the outside looking in, it, they, they could argue all they want. And mm -hmm. It really didn't matter. But uh, I, when I was still in the closet and struggling with my sexuality, I had affiliated with the Anglican church for a while. And then at, when the whole thing with... Uh, the whole LGBTQ issue coming up and being discussed, it was getting too close to home for me. Yeah. So I defected for a while to the Eastern Orthodox Church, for who I, for a church that I have a lot of theological attitudes in common with. Yeah. Um, not necessarily on sexuality, but definitely on some really uh, heavy theological debates that would put most people to sleep really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I would be fascinated, um, but I'm not sure if Your all of my listeners might have a they might not be. I don't know. <laughs> Some of them right now, I'm sure, are just going like, no, 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 talk about it, talk about it. Uh, yeah, no, if there's if there's a cry for it, maybe we can follow, do a follow-up. Yeah, we'll do a follow-up. It's like, for those who are not interested, we'll spare them that agony. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to the fourth century. Uh, yeah, and which we would have to do, and then uh, a lot of people would be like, "Okay, you you hear that sound? That that's them falling off their chairs in the <laughs> stupor." <laughs> but you moved over to that to the Eastern Orthodox Church at that point. I did, and I don't regret doing that. Uh, I did learn a lot there uh, about a relationship with God and piety, mm -hmm. and of incorporating your whole self in worship rather than just your mind. Yeah. I'm Orthodox 
and Catholic worship for the most part is an all five senses involve your whole body sort of worship. Yeah. Especially after the fifth time you've gotten up from the kneelers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, uh, but uh, when I f- finally came out, I found that I it wasn't that safe a church to be with. And there for a while, Hugh and I were sort of content to like surf along for a while, faithful but unchurched, sort of so to speak. Yeah. And then a good friend of ours finally convinced us to try out the Episcopal Church. The parish she was going to was very LGBTQ affirming. And so we went and we that throughout our entire time in Cincinnati we were members of that parish and then when we moved, finally moved to Phoenix, we had a bit of a dry period, and then we found another LGBTQ-affirming parish, St. Mary's on 39th and Avenue in Maryland, yeah. that not only was affirming, it was also a very Catholic expression of Anglican spirituality. And it sounds like for you that's, that's kind of the best of all worlds. Yeah, it is. The yeah. best of all worlds uh, it, again, is the style of worship, the theology that I appreciate, the fact that there is a devotion to Mary, the mother of God, whose nativity it is today. This this is the feast day of the nativity of the mother of God. Oh, I didn't even know that coming yeah. into this today. Oh, that's, yeah. that's really special. Yes, it is. It, not officially on the Episcopal calendar, but that doesn't mean anything to Episcopalians who have a devotion to the Blessed Mother. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Around about what time was that that you got into that we, space? We uh, decided to really get back into church in 2014 okay. after being here in Phoenix for about three years. We visited a couple of parishes, didn't really feel that welcome in them. It, not so much that, oh, you're LGBTQ, you're, we don't know what to do with you. It's like, oh, you're new. We don't know what to do with you. Oh, right. Yeah, just on that level. Yeah, just on that level. It's like, oh, yeah, no, you're gay. That's cool. It's like, well, we don't know you. <laughs> and it's really tacky to ask how much you're pledging. Right. Was that, <laughs> so was that a problem in general when you moved to Arizona that you found people were not comfortable with new people or just in that context? In certain contexts, yes. Some Arizonans were like, oh, uh, hi. We don't know you. Now, the bear community was completely different, but the bear community does tend to be a little open almost to a fault. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, work was a little standoffish. A few other, uh, it took us a while to get to know the neighbors. Yeah, I found that to be, especially depending on the, just kind of like the physical geography of a neighborhood, you know, whether there is parking, you know, whether there's street parking or individual garages or whatever the situation is, sometimes it can be almost impossible to connect with your neighbors. Yeah. And of course, being on the West, in the West Valley, uh, our neighbors weren't exactly all that welcoming to a gay couple. Mm. We didn't have anything untoward happen. It's just that things were maybe just a little chillier. Uh, One set of neighbors was openly hostile until they realized just how big I am. (laughs) I mean, being at like 6'4 and 300 pounds, it can like, 
when somebody's being obnoxious and then you stand up, they realize, oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> He's really big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think also you do just have kind of a calming presence. So I imagine the combination of those factors will cool people down if they're I think I was scowling hostile. at the time, so I don't mm, think Maybe a little less calm. calming. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, you, you were mentioning that Hugh was involved in leading a, a bear group in Cincinnati. When you came here, uh, did you also try to get involved in organizing community spaces, or did you find there was already just enough happening? That oh, there could... was enough happening. That's great. Um, early on, we got involved with the uh, bear community here. It is a very party-centric group, and Hugh and I are starting to get a little older and found that it's a little more difficult to keep up. Plus, I have a history of liver disease in my family, and I was just pushing it. Oh, right. <laughs> I think the bear community isn't something I, I've been able to get to know very well, but on one of the neighbor neighborhood streets I like to drive on a lot, one of the most beautiful houses has a bear pride flag ah. hanging, and it's delightful, and I always just feel like there's not even that many people around that will fly a generic pride flag in my neighborhood, and this, this person has this specific community pride flag, which I think is wonderful, and for me, that's been like my main perception of the bear community in Phoenix. It's just like, these people must be amazing because look at this display of pride. But that's kind of the whole knowledge I have. It sounds like there's actually just a really active and, and positive community. Yeah. I mean, Hugh and I have been out of that scene for a while. Yeah. Um, mainly because we've the bear community is very open and Hugh and I had decided to close our relationship right. uh, a few years ago, especially when I decided to uh, take a religious vow. So mm. yeah, uh, open relationships and religious vows tend not to go hand in hand. <laughs> this is not a lot of uh, support for that, but there's not a lot of support for LGBT people taking religious vows in general. Well, it's really interesting. The order I belong to is very supportive. Mm. I mean, they're very traditional. Their theology is very traditional. Uh, their adherence to scripture is very traditional, but they are very accepting of the LGBTQ. Um, there's, okay, I don't want to like out anybody or mention things mm -hmm. without their permission, but they're out online on social media as well. Okay. And it happens to be uh, the Anglican Dominican order, uh, like the Roman Catholic Dominicans. Yeah. Uh, we, we have, we resurrected the Dominican order after about 400 years in 1999. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> it, it is. And so uh, being more along the lines of, celibate men's order or a celibate women's order, uh, the Roman Catholic Dominicans have those branches of the Dominican order, uh, mm -hmm. celibate men and celibate women, but they also have a third order of men and women who are Dominican, but they, they have a different set of vows for the fact that they can be married. And we have that same structure where we allow married and unmarried brothers and sisters. What led you to the decision to pursue that path? Oh, gee, uh, how much time have we got? <laughs> We've got some time. Uh, it's, um, I've always had a feeling that there, that God had wanted me to do 
more with my life than just sit back in a pew and be there on a Sunday. And I have, our parish did uh, an exercise called spiritual gifts where we sit down, we take a, a very lengthy questionnaire yeah. uh, confidentially that you get to grade yourself when you're done yeah. on what your spiritual gifts are based on the questions you answered and the points that you tally up. And mine leaned toward study, teaching, and preaching. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. So three weeks later, I took it again and got the same results. And I thought, no. So I waited a couple years more, not years, but a few months more. Took it again, same results. And so I thought, and we already had some religious uh, in our community, and they were Benedictines. And the idea of um, periods of silence really didn't set well with me. When I was in the Orthodox Church, I did join a monastery for a short period of time. And my smart mouth got me into trouble so many times that that monastery had the most immaculate, clean, sparkling toilets ever. <laughs> <laughs> you can guess what my penance was. Yeah. This was in your in your twenties when this was in my twenties. Okay, yeah, when I had an even more smart mouth than I do now. <laughs> but the whole idea of being able to like not just sit and study, which I like to do, but also proclaim and teach and, yeah. and all that, which is what I like to do. I thought, well, does the Episcopal Church have an order? that is dedicated to that, whether it's an actual habited order or whether mm-hmm. it's an actual association or group like that. And I started looking, and uh, I immediately, uh, the Benedictines were like prodding me saying, we think you have a call to religious life. We think you have a call to religious <laughs> life. And it's like, and I said, well, you know what? It would either have to be a Dominican or a Jesuit, and because the Jesuits were originally founded to put an end to the Anglican church. We don't have them. (laughs) Right. So, uh, and I didn't think anymore, but then I found looking in, in the resources for the Episcopal church of the United States, their national website, there was an actual Dominican order. And I thought, okay, this is odd. So I set out an inquiry thinking that I might get a response. I might not. Sometimes they can be really slow. Remember what I said about glacial? Yeah. But they got back in touch with me really quickly, and I said, well, here's the thing. I'm gay, and I'm in, I'm married to my husband. And they said, we follow the canons of the Episcopal Church. That won't be a problem. Little did I know that there are already several other LGBTQ, married LGBTQ, uh, <laughs> within the order at the time. So I did a short three-month inquiry process, then was a postulant for a year, Mm -hmm. then went through a two-year novitiate, and in August of 2021, I took my solemn vows as a married brother. So, Oh, wow. Back in your 20s, when you first kind of pursued a similar path, what was it about monastic life that attracted you? Life in a rule, uh, I like organization, but if I don't have a rule to follow... I'm all over the place. Mm. 
Uh, I need to, in order to keep my life well-ordered and just so I can like do something simple, like find my keys, oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to have a place for them. Otherwise, if I don't put my keys in my place or if I don't have a set time for my prayers, I, I misplace both of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's just who I am. And the idea of a an order that caters, that is built on the expression of the spiritual gifts I happen to share yeah. with that order that also gives me a rule of life to adhere to, to bring order to my otherwise. I don't think I'm ADD, but sometimes I act as if I were. <laughs> if I didn't have like my planner and my smartphone and that dedicated hook to put my keys, I'd be a I'd be one hot mess. I'm exactly the same. I have to have my pens and my notebooks and my, here's where my glasses go at night and all of that. And if I misplace it, Hugh can tell you, I will like go around the house for 15 minutes howling, where are my keys? (laughs) Where did I put my pen? (laughs) It also doesn't help that we have three cats and sometimes they walk away with stuff. Yeah, that's fair. Well, I'd be curious to know, you mentioned you moved to Ohio for grad school. That's correct. What did you study? Uh, Well, uh, it was classical civilization. I had... uh, Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's exciting. I had a fairly arcane education. That's exciting to me personally, and maybe, again, like two listeners. We'll see. (laughs) Yeah, two listeners. (laughs) Yes. Both of them at opposite ends of the valley. Yeah. Uh, No, I... uh, I started out on a fairly conventional path when I went to university. I did the college prep thing in high school, mm-hmm. went to university. You can tell I'm from Canada. I call it university. <laughs> and I started out in the sciences, and I was thinking I was going to major in physics. I really liked physics in college. Oh, yeah. Or in school. Well, physics so, is beautiful. Physics is beautiful. Phys- uh, but the problem is physics also involves mathematics. <laughs> That's true. And I thought I was good at mathematics until I took calculus. Oh. <laughs> and then I realized I barely squeaked by with a B minus in calculus. And I think it was because the professor took pity on me oh. <laughs> uh, that I realized that physics probably wouldn't be a good move. However, I took Latin as my humanity uh, requirement and got an A in the class and the head of the classics department said, would you consider changing majors? We've got this scholarship here for you if Uh, you do. (laughs) And it's like, well, this was fun. I seem to have a talent for it. And there's no calculus involved. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) And so I switched my majors and ended up bringing up my GPA. And so I graduated with a major in Latin. And... um, I technically didn't minor because it was like sort of a double major in Latin, but yeah. I also did the ancient history and classical civilization and ancient Greek classes. And then I uh, went at, at the end of a degree like that. Well, what do you do? You either go for a bachelor's of education or you go to graduate school right. or you work flipping burgers. <laughs> it's it's frustrating to me because I, I looked at similar options. I ended up getting a math degree, but I looked at all of those, like, I loved Latin when I was a kid, and I got to study Latin for a bit. And I looked at those kinds of things, and I just thought, but what am I going to do with my life if I actually study something like that? 
the thing with uh, something like in classical civilization or something like that, usually it's uh, an applied history or something like that, but the competition for positions in that field is fierce because right. there's not a lot of positions. Yeah. And so if you want to like, it, there's still a use for it, not a huge use, but people do eventually have to go back and say, well, what did this ancient text say? Or was there a clue here as to what happened in history back then? Or did they really mean to say that? And then you have to go back and dig in the ancient texts and try to figure out what that word was. Or if it was on a burned off edge of a manuscript, try <laughs> to figure out what that word would have been. Yeah. <laughs> and those positions in in academia and in the world are they're valuable, but they're few and far between because you don't need a lot of them right. to fulfill that need. You just need a few experts here and there throughout the United States and the world, and that fulfills the need. And so uh, generally the school system produces more than there are to fill that need, and so the competition gets to be a little cutthroat. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, it's If you got a... If you gotta, Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. Oh, gosh, yeah, the world is your oyster because everybody is, like, putting on their job descriptions. We'd like you to have a, a business admin degree or we'd like you to have a Bachelor of Science in Computer Programming degree or something like that. Everyone needs middle managers, but they don't need experts in Yeah, they don't need history. experts. Or it's like, ah, uh, what really cracks me up are the entry-level positions, which don't require a lot of expertise, who say, you need a bachelor's degree. Yeah. What for? Yeah. For data entry? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the way you were talking about being able to look for meaning someone might miss just from like, well, I know this word means this, and this word means this, having a real sense of the culture of speech do you personally find meaning in being able to see how people lived and spoke and thought 2,000 years ago? I do. Um, those things, it, the human response is pretty much universal to mm -hmm. stressors of whatever source. And so if it's a case of, okay, so the stressors might be a little different. Uh, here you might be dealing with like wage slavery, where you're being paid at less than a living wage for a boss that doesn't like to give you the PTO that you are actually due according to the employee manual yeah. and stuff like that. And then you have you can like look back and see, well, they had that similar situations. Okay, it wasn't called wage slavery, it was called outright slavery. And plus, it also is very valuable in comparing social ills of that time with social ills of this time, such as how did, like, the difference between various nationalities in Rome play out against, like, the very involuted caste-like structure of racial identity in the United States, right. which Rome did not have. Right. So that, that helps illustrate the point that some of the problems that we have in America today are of America's own making. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of that traces back more to 15th century Spanish history than, than Rome. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, all West Western European history in general, 
uh, a lot of the attitudes that we see Spain having toward people in the Americas very definitely uh, were reflected by the French and the English as well, and the Germans in Africa, and the Dutch in Africa, because they lost their North American holdings really early on in the process. So. <laughs> but, no, I mean, being a Dominican, some of the things that we've been looking at is the Dominicans' role in studying the doctrine of discovery right. and its impact. And uh, they're a very influential Dominican from that period, uh, Bartolome de la Casas, uh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. I, I know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Bartolome had, did a couple of missteps trying to uh, ameliorate the lot of the Native American in the Spanish Empire mm-hmm. and made a couple of suggestions that went horribly backfired, horribly backfired on him and yeah. realized that and he'd spent the rest of his career just trying to undo everything and then try to make things better for Afri- people of African descent and people of... American uh, descent, but it was an uphill battle. And there were a lot of people like Sepulveda who were uh, very much against him. And of course, the economic interests of the Holy Roman Emperor, who at the time was also the Spanish king, sort of like, sort of put him on Sepulveda's side. It's sort of like, well, you know, I sort of understand where you're coming from, Reverend Father. Uh, It's... (laughs) Yeah, really interesting, but wow, look at all that gold coming in. <laughs> right. And the, the same thing happened in England. Wow, look at all that gold coming in. And they, they were, Western Europe was just coming out of the institution of serfdom, which was right. in itself an institutionalized slavery, but wasn't race-based. Right. That was a pure, that was basically like a class system Mm-hmm. That was they tried to fasten down as a caste system, but then when they went over to the new world, all of a sudden there were all these non-Christian peoples that they were exposed to, and Western Europe took a very non-Christian approach to these non-Christian peoples. It's a major blot on the face of the church, and we are like just doing all sorts of backpedaling. Tr- some of us, some of us, right. Some Christian churches are still very much embroiled in the sin of racism and the sin of colonialism. Yes. But it seems like for you on some level, being able to connect to things that people might associate with that, like more traditional Christianity, being able to connect to that and being able to look back beyond some of that really blemished history is something that, as far as I can tell, helps you to connect to it more in a way that's healing and positive. You cannot heal if you don't know what has caused the problem to begin with. Mm -hmm. And just glossing over the sins of our past that we're all complicit in because we're we're still participating in the systems that grew out of this. I mean, none of us are free of its taint, really. And the big thing is, is to be cognizant of that and realize that, yeah, I've got some attitudes that I was brought up in that I didn't think anything about. And yeah. they, they're like automatic. And it's like, ooh, well, this is a problem. Really, j- just how Christ-like is this? Not very. <laughs> yeah. And to think that 
the churches were so complicit in it. Um, we still have a major problem, even in our most liberal churches, because, of course, here in the United States, we're still American. We still have people yeah. who have been brought up and steeped in this system. I mean, when they talk about systemic racism, they're not talking about, or critical race theory, what they're just talking about is, like, what is actually happening? What has happened? Yes. How are things, yeah. like programming us to move forward it's the same thing as if you grew up in an alcoholic family mm. you've got programming that happens there granted so your mom and dad didn't beat you or call you names or verbally abuse you or anything like that but they still drank and they still had an impaired functionality with society yeah. and with your family there was still dysfunction there i mean granted that's more the exception than the rule. I mean, usually alcoholism like ushers in a whole lot of others. Big, massive problems. But sometimes it can be just that. It it may be it may look fairly benign, but there's still yeah. issues that go with that. And the children of alcoholics or addicts grow up with certain problems with mm -hmm. society and with with their own interpersonal relationships that if they don't turn and address them, will still continue to right. program their own responses and perpetuate the cycle. You can never just say, well, I'm making a fresh start. It's not enough to just say it. Right. There's work you have to do. Right. There's work you have to do. And it's work that you have to do until the day you die. Yeah. For me, the, the message that I took away from the church is it's not a case of, like some some churches say, hey, just say a little prayer and then everything's hunky-dory. And it's like, no, it's not. It's a whole process of like turning away from the negative toward God and the positive. It's all about what we call sin is negativity, death, corruption, all of those things that basically denigrate people, uh, bring people into create problems for people or even cause their illness or damage or death. Yep. And there's plenty of that in this world. And we all have to turn away from that. And I have always said that there's a lot more grace for a moral atheist than there is for an immoral Christian. Yeah. There's... <laughs> In the final judgment, the the moral atheist is probably going to get a better shake from God than the immoral Christian is. <laughs> I'm really grateful to Brother Lee for giving me the opportunity to record this conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you'd like to catch up on past episodes of the podcast, you can find the Arizona Equals Conversation on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. And you can visit our archive at equalityarizona.org stories. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to tune in next week.